I didn't read my first book until freshman year of college. I actually failed reading in the third grade, and they forced me into summer school. Uh, summer school consisted of eating popsicles and, and playing basketball. It was history of Civ, my freshman year of college, that smacked me in the face and put a book in my hands. Once I started reading, I was hooked. I couldn't put books down. I figured that I might as well get degrees while I'm reading all of these books. So uh, 10 years after reading my first book, I finished my doctoral degree. One of the things that I love about books is that they expose areas in my life that I thought I had conquered. It's probably because of my childhood that I constantly pray for my children that they will have a hunger for reading. It's also why we provide a recommended reading list for all of you on our church website. Uh, your time is valuable and you shouldn't waste it with bad books. You should have the gold standard, whether you're reading fiction or whether you're reading on parenting, marriage, hermeneutics, history, evangelism. We have a, we have a list of books for your kids as well. Certain books draw you in very quickly. The action, the adventure, the skill at which the author thickens the plot. And, and then you get into the middle of a book and you think, you know, this one is a little dry. It's losing momentum. It's stalled. The information you're consuming doesn't seem to further the storyline. And you can't wait to get to the end of the book because you know the action's going to once again pick up. Because of this, some books that are 400 pages should have only been 200. The author should have cut or condensed the middle of the book. And if he did, the book would have lost nothing valuable. That's how some people feel about the book of Ruth. Ruth chapter 1 is full of adventure and excitement. The plot thickens with the infusion of sorrow. It's fast moving. Then in chapter 2, the book slows down. Teachers typically summarize this chapter in a few sentences before jumping to chapter 3 and 4 where the action picks up again. But I'm not going to do that. There are some truths here about your God and His grace that you can't miss. And by the way, we aren't reading any old book. We're reading God's book. And if He slows down, He slows down for a purpose. God takes it slow. So I want to take it slow. I want to glean certain truths from these fields of grace. Let's do a comparison chart. just want to bless you with the chart at the very beginning today. Uh, Ruth chapter 1 is fast. Ruth chapter 2 is slow. It's a drastic change of speed. The book starts out going 150 miles per hour, but the author downshifts quickly in chapter 2, and we stroll at a nice and leisurely pace of 35 miles per hour. Chapter 1 is fast and furious. Chapter 2 is driving Miss Daisy. Chapter 1 covers... 20 years, chapter 2 covers approximately 20 hours, especially when you take out the last verse of the chapter, verse 23, which is about a, a seven-week period, which I think goes with chapter 3 instead of chapter 2. But 20 hours of fieldwork, <laughs> detailing all the events of one day of fieldwork. That's not exciting. My brother worked for my grandfather in his tobacco field, and he worked for a, a quarter a day. Nothing exciting goes on in farm fields. Chapter 1, you see God's visible hand. God sent a famine to Bethlehem because of the people's sin. He took the life of Elimelech, Naomi's husband, because he ran from God's city and God's discipline. He went from the fields of Bethlehem to the fields of sin, the fields of Moab. We see God taking the lives of Naomi's two sons. 
You, you see his visible hand. And on a positive note, at the end of chapter 1, you see him bringing bread back to Bethlehem through the harvest. Chapter 2, you see his invisible hand. There's no dramatic miracles, not a whole lot of exciting things going on, not a lot of deaths or weddings. It's just a dry sludge that sets you up for chapter 3. And it seems like everything is happening by chance. That's what the author is saying. But later you find out that these are sovereignly controlled circumstances. Maybe you've heard it said that coincidence is often God's way of remaining anonymous. Nothing happens by accident in the economy of God. He's working through ordinary affairs, ordinary days at work. My goal is to banish chance from your mind so that you can see the unseen hand of God in everything. Chapter 1 God is center stage. In chapter 2, God is backstage. So these are the two hands of God. All throughout scripture, he inserts his hand into the world and sends manna. He sticks his finger into the world and parts the Red Sea. But there are other times in scripture where his hand is present, but it's invisible. He's moving his people through their own decisions, through their own desires, He's making a tree grow this exact same spot so that Zacchaeus can climb it years and years later. The first truth I want to glean from these fields of grace is this. Grace does not work sporadically in your life. It works continuously. Whether we notice it or not, grace is at work even now. We do not come in and out of grace. We live there. Church, we are surrounded by grace. And oh, for eyes to see and for hearts to sense and for minds to appreciate the grace of God at work in our lives. And let's not delay any longer. Let's find this unseen hand. Chapter 2 opens with two ladies sitting around a breakfast table. A 50-year-old woman, depressed. The only thing darker than the coffee in which she's staring into is her heart. She's bitter. She's mad because of God's visible hand in her life. She is now a woman with no words and no smiles. It's a bit of a paradox. Across the table sits Ruth, her 25-year-old daughter-in-law, a sweet, chatty, former pagan woman now redeemed by Yahweh. Salvation put a smile on her face in chapter 1 and she just can't seem to, to wipe it off. Ruth is unable to get her mother-in-law to say anything. Naomi answers everything with an angry grunt. <clears throat> the situation is dire for both of them. They are hungry. God brought bread back to his city, but there isn't any bread on their breakfast table. And we are so affluent, it's nearly impossible for us to sit at their table. We satisfy our appetites three times a day with snacks in between. Very few adults in our church can identify with Naomi and Ruth, but some of our children can. I want to give you a picture of what happens in the homes of some of our people. The mom and dad pray with their kids before putting them to bed. They read the Bible to them. They tell them, you are loved. We will never leave you. They kiss them. They turn out the lights. And five minutes later, they hear a slow creak of a bedroom door opening. They know what's happening. Their child is sneaking to the kitchen, opening the pantry door, grabbing a cereal bar. The child rushes back to bed, not to open the bar, but to hold it 
under his pillow as a comfort so he can get to sleep. The child cannot rest on his parents' constant reassurance that they will feed him whenever he is hungry. And you know why it's playing out like this. Because these kids have previously been starved. They grew up in horrible environments and people from our church went and adopted them. Their parents know that they sneak the cereal bar. They cry in bed at night because they're doing everything in their power to reassure them that they will never go hungry again. You're never going to be harmed again. You don't have to hoard food. You're in, you're in a house of grace. We're never going to run dry. You actually pass these kids every Sunday. You may not notice them until they step on your $200 shoes or run into you while they're playing tag. We've all met these kids turned into adults. Quite a few become successful millionaires. They're just so driven. They walk around still with a cereal bar in their pocket. Because they can't shake the feeling that in an instant they could lose the millions and have nothing left but a bar. Naomi and Ruth don't even have a, a cereal bar. Ruth is willing to work, longing to work, but she doesn't have a lot of employment options. But this is why they moved to Bethlehem. There was one job by law for her, and that law, and that job was gleaning. See, Bethlehem was under the Jewish law, specifically Leviticus chapter 19, Deuteronomy chapter 24, which says that farmers should let poor people glean his fields. And here, here's what gleaning means. I'll just let scripture unpack it for me. Leviticus 19, 9. When you reap the harvest of your land, you shall not reap to the very edges of the field. This is God's instruction for farmers. Or gather the gleanings of your harvest. You shall not strip your vineyard bare. Or gather the fallen grapes of your vineyard. You shall leave them for the poor and the alien. Now, when it talks about alien, it's not talking about Independence Day, aliens like that. You know the movie Independence Day and Will Smith? It's not aliens like that. These are foreigners. Then notice Deuteronomy 24. When you beat your olive trees, do not strip what is left. It shall be for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Leave the corners of the field for the alien, the orphan, and the widow. Alien, orphans, and widows didn't own land in ancient Israel. So they didn't have a field to work, so God built into his society a way to care for the least of these. This was God's welfare system. This is God's way of saying, don't lick the bowl. Leave a little bit in there. Don't pick up all the crumbs. Verse 2, Ruth the Moabitess said to Naomi, let me go to the field and, keyword, glean among the ears of grain. Naomi, we know Naomi, what, how does she respond? She grunts, <clears throat> shoes her away. Gleaning was the first century equivalent of walking up and down the road collecting aluminum cans and turning them in for cash. My brother used to do this. He actually used to go to a local trash dump, uh, collect cans out of the big trash containers. Uh, I remember one day he found a, a big box of um, bubblicious gum, unopened pack. He took it back to my granddaddy's convenience store and um, sold each piece for five cents. <laughs> so he was crafty. He, he couldn't buy a shirt with his earnings. So I couldn't imagine Ruth trying to eke out a living this way. 
Verse 3 says, Ruth set out and went and gleaned in the field after the reapers, and she happened, she happened to come to the part of the field belonging to Boaz. And we lose so much, so much in this story reading it in English because the language here is so dramatic. Uh, it, it just so, she just so happened to stumble into this guy's field. It's like a coincidence that doesn't just happen. Uh, husbands, it's like when, when it's your wife's turn to pick out a movie. So you're watching those chick flicks. And there's some major plot turn that hinges on some totally random lucky coincidence. And you're sitting there like, come on. This would never just happen in real life. This is absurd. This is garbage. Who writes this stuff? And then you, you turn... You know, you turn to your wife, you're about to point out this said absurdity of the plot, and you notice that she's sniffling, she's wiping her tears, and in one of those few shining moments in your relationship, you think, you know, this is probably not the best time to point out the absurdity of this plot. <laughs> and then you just look over and say, honey, this, this reminds me of our love story. <laughs> See, there were, there were no fences used to show property lines between different farmers' fields. It looks like an undisguisable mess to Ruth, and she just picks a corner, a random corner. Literally, the Hebrew says, as chance chanced, or as we might say, as luck would have it. This is a Hebrew funny. The author is winking at you. Ruth's choice of field and the reaper's choice of when to harvest that field all look like chance. There were no neon flashing lights no plane flying over with a banner saying, Ruth, glean here, Boaz is filled below. No audible voice saying, 10 more feet and then to the left. At that time to Ruth, it was just an ordinary decision. I'll just go to this field and glean. To the world, it was blind chance, coincidence. But is it really coincidence? Not a chance. The narrator is inviting us to see there was no such thing as luck driving this chain of events. He is stressing the hiddenness of God's hand. In verse 4, we're introduced to this chap named Boaz. Verse 1 says he's a worthy man. Uh, you may want to mark, mark the word worthy because it's, it's packed with meaning. It alludes to a few things. First, he's, he's a war hero. The same word is translated war hero in Joshua 6, Judges 6, and 2 Samuel 17. This term has such a strong military context that some scholars believe Boaz was a veteran soldier. And since Boaz would have been living in the days of Gideon in Judges 6 as an eligible soldier, and Gideon had called for all the faithful volunteers from among the tribes, some scholars believe that Boaz had been one of Gideon's 300 valiant men. So he was... A war hero. But he was also loaded. The word wealth here is translated in 2 Kings 15 to refer to a wealthy man. So Boaz has lots of fields. He has lots of employees. His employees are even tiered. So he runs a big operation. And then finally the, the word hints that he's a, he's a dude's dude. The Hebrew word there, wealth, speaks of strength. In verse 4, this... Spiritual knight in shining armor, he comes and he's riding on a horse, his cape flapping in the wind. You could call him Boaz Wayne, distant relative of John Wayne. He's a, he's a man's man. He's strong, gruff, powerful. 
As one guy says, he doesn't own a sweater vest. He doesn't drink wine spritzers. He doesn't drink anything with frappe in the name. He's never listened to a Taylor Swift album. And he doesn't get into cooking shows. This is that kind of guy. He's a man's man. And it's interesting to me to watch the specific contrast between Boaz Strong with Ruth's first husband, whose name meant sickly, weak. Boaz jumps off the horse and he says to his reapers, the Lord be with you. Now this is not an empty religious cliche. Boaz shows concern well beyond the normal greeting of Shalom. Boaz's words both greeted his reapers and gave them his hope for them. Look at the words again. The Lord be with you. Boaz is saying to his employees that he wants them not only to be blessed, but blessed by the sense that Yahweh was with them present in their work. Can you imagine your boss coming to you at work, passing your desk and saying, I hope you experience the presence of God today as you work. Boaz honors the Lord in his field and is respected by his workers. Notice how they replied, and they answered, the Lord bless you. Boaz came to inspect the harvest, and, and barring discovery of something unusual, Boaz would simply check on things, encourage his workers, and go on to his next set of fields. But something caught his eye, or maybe better yet, someone, a foreigner. He could tell she wasn't an Israelite. Her facial structure was different. She had different cheek bones. Verse 5, Boaz said to his young man who was in charge of the reapers. So this is, this is the nerd with the clipboard who actually graduated from college. He, he is the, the foreman over the farmlands. Notice what he says. Whose woman is this? He does not say, who is she? He asked, whose is she? Whom does she belong does she have a place in society? Boaz cares about more than a bumper crop. He cares about these men and women who are scraping out an existence. Where others see a reject, he sees a child of God. Where others see distortion and ruin, he sees beauty. And Boaz's brief question elicits a lengthy, surprisingly detailed reply from the foreman. He says, that's, that's Naomi's daughter-in-law. She's a widow and a refugee. I let her glean the corners today and she has been killing it. Boaz watches her for a while. Not in a creepy way, but in a compassionate way. And he eventually walks over to this woman whose clothes are torn, face covered in oil and grime. And he says in verse 8, wait, before I read verse 8, some commentators make it sound like Boaz was romantically interested in Ruth at this point. They believe that Boaz's next words are the Hebrew equivalent of a whistle or an Old Testament pickup line. And that's actually how I snagged Sarah. I threw out a Christian pickup line. Uh, so Sarah, last night I was reading the book of Numbers and then I realized I didn't have yours. <laughs> a year later we were married. But I, I don't agree with some of these commentators. I think they're too quick to jump to chapter 3 and 4. Let the, st the story develop here. I, I don't think Boaz's intentions are romantic at this point. Notice what he says in verse 8. Now listen, my daughter. Do not go to glean in another field or leave this one, but keep close to my young women. So there are three groups in this text. First, the first group is the reapers. These are not slaves, but free Israelites who work for wages. 
The reaper would grab the stalk with his left hand and cut the grain with a short sickle with his right hand. And he would hang on to it, grab another stalk and then another stalk, eventually filling his hand until he had a bundle and he would lay that bundle down along the edge of the field. Then the second group would appear, that's the women. They would follow along the reapers collecting and binding the bundles. And then the third group was the gleaners. Ruth was a gleaner. They would glean not only the corners of the field, but the stalks left behind after the men and women had finished. So in the first century, farming was crude and not very efficient. Uh, not including the skipped corners, they would leave 5, per, five or 10% of the harvest in the field. So they didn't have John Deere equipment to harvest every last piece of grain. Like this field over here, there's nothing left. The reapers could only pass through their fields once. Anything they dropped or couldn't carry out the first time, they could not go back and clean it up. Throughout Israel, there would be farmers who refused to obey this. They forbade gleaners access and would send their own farmhands back into the fields and gather what was left. Boaz continues in his conversation by saying in 9b, Have I not charged the young men not to touch you? Gleaning was hard work, it was hot work, and it wasn't necessarily safe work. I think the word touch here implies rape and abuse. The same phrase in Hebrew is translated sexual relationship in Genesis 20 verse 6. This is a, a, a young woman who is without a husband, alone, vulnerable, foreign, poor, without legal protection in Israel. And Ruth knew the danger. That's why she responds, really, Boaz? She knows that this is a remarkable move in this time and place in history. And Boaz says, yes, I told my men that if I find out they touched you, that this is a big field. No one would ever find their bodies. And this is the Old Testament. He would have done it. This is such a contrast to me. With the book before Ruth, the end of Judges, where men are treating women so terribly. And then we get to Ruth, where Boaz institutes history's first sexual harassment policy. In verse 15, he adds, do not reproach her. Do not sling hostile racial insults. Don't bring any of those Moabite jokes here. No shoving as well, no verbal abuse. One can imagine enthusiastic gleaners like Ruth desperate for food, who ignored repeated verbal warnings, overstepped the line between gleaner and reaper, and had to pay the price. Boaz continues the end of verse 9, And when you are thirsty, go to the vessels and drink what the young men have drawn. She gets to drink from the company water cooler, meaning she didn't have to walk back into town for water. She just had to walk to the edge of the field. This will greatly benefit Ruth's productivity. She could keep gleaning at top efficiency without losing valuable time. And if, and if we are the original readers, our mouths are on the ground. As a foreign woman, she would be expected to draw water for the men. But Boaz says, I'm not going to treat you like that. I'm going to treat you like you have dignity. I honor the Imago Dei. Boaz loved Latin. I honor the Imago Dei. I'll treat you like family. We will serve you. Boaz goes even further in verse 16 and tells his reapers to pull out some from the bundles and accidentally drop them so Ruth can pick them up. Boaz put human need above financial gain. And why did he do this? Not because of the law, but because of love. Love took him beyond the gleaning laws. 
What meets all the standards of the law and goes beyond it? Grace. Ruth will literally be gleaning in fields of grace. Verse 10, then Ruth fell on her face. That's a proper response to grace. Fell on her face, bowing to the ground and said, Why have I found favor in your eyes that you should take notice of me since I am a foreigner? Years ago, a senator received a phone call from, at that time, President-elect Barack Obama. She actually hung up on him. He called her back and introduced himself again. She hung up on him again. She thought it was a gag. You can, you can watch her being interviewed. She said, I don't get phone calls from the president. Who would get a call from a president unless they deserved it? Or unless they did something heroic? Or unless they were worthy? In fact, do not miss that the very first word Ruth says to Boaz is, Why? Why? Why are you, why is someone like you speaking to someone like me? And that leads us to the second truth we need to glean from this field. And it is this. Grace is love that seeks you out when you have nothing to give in return. Grace is love coming at you that has nothing to do with you. I pulled this point from Paul Zoll. Verse 11, Boaz answered Ruth's why question. He says, Ruth, this is, a, this is a small town. I didn't know you by sight, but I knew your reputation. You came to care for Naomi and to live among total strangers. They continued to speak for a while. A couple of hours later around lunch, verse 14 happens. Boaz said to Ruth, come here and eat some bread and dip your bread in wine. So she sat beside the reapers and he passed to her roasted grain. And she ate until she was satisfied. And she had some left over. Again, now some people make this out like a little romantic date, dipping strawberries in chocolate fondue. But I don't think that was the case. This is a rugged meal in the field. People are using the restroom in the open. They're coming back, touching food without sanitizing their hands. This is a germaphobe's nightmare. <laughs> this is not fondue. It's their vinegar-based sauce, which was customary for this culture. Uh, recently, Sarah and I went out to eat with a couple in our church, the Van Burens, and the, the waiter had a plate, and he poured oil on the plate, and then he poured some vinegar on the plate, and then he mixed it together, and I didn't grow up in a very cultured environment, so I looked at Sarah, and I'm like, what is this? And she said, it's a normal European snack. You, you dip the bread in it. And I'm from the South. I'm used to fried snacks. <laughs> apple barn with fried apple fritters covered in confectionous sugar. Well, I want you to picture Ruth snacking on uncooked grain until this verse when Boaz served her cooked grain. With his own skillet, he knelt down and according to their custom, brushed some of the roasted kernels probably onto Ruth's mat or perhaps into her lap. And that leads us to the third truth we need to glean from this field and it's this. Grace pulls up a seat at the table when you didn't have one. Ruth even had a little doggy bag left over. Grace overflowing. My mother used to ask for doggy bags all the time at restaurants. She would, she would ask for more biscuits right before she left Cracker Barrel. And then she would dump all of those biscuits in the, in the doggy bag. And I would just be like, Mom, please stop. They know what you're doing. 
You're asking for extra biscuits and the doggy bag at the same time. This is embarrassing. And she's like, son, shut your mouth and take those 20 packs of jelly and quietly slip them into the bag. <laughs> and then later, like one in the morning, I'm, I'm waking up and I'm starving because my parents ate, ate dinner at 3.30 in the afternoon with all the other senior citizens at Cracker Barrel. <laughs> And I'm pulling out biscuits, and I'm pulling out salt shakers, and I'm pulling out the little triangle game they have on the table at Cracker Bell, and old-timey candles. They, they bowl them to the table now because the Sharon's there. Um, I, I, Ruth continued working until the end of the day. She beat out the grain, according to verse 17, and then she left with an, with an ephah or ephah of barley. Now, most of us are not used to visualizing an, an ephah or ephah of barley, and as a result, we're not very impressed by Ruth's hall. So it may help to clarify the issue and point out that she brought home somewhere between 30 and 50 pounds of grain or a month's worth of food. It was the size of a colossal bag of dog food. We, we can imagine Naomi fidgeting all day, wondering how Ruth is doing. Then in the distance, she spots her. So she runs away from the blinds, swings the door open, and sees the 50-pound bag over her shoulders. This is enough to make a thousand cereal bars. Verse 19, she begins to ask questions without giving Ruth a chance to answer them. Suddenly, bitter Naomi has words. She can talk. She's even dancing. Stella got her groove back. And that leads us to our fourth truth we need to glean from this field. Grace opens your mouth. Grace makes you dance. Grace causes you to sing. And grace rescues you from bitterness and gives you joy. Notice that it was food that melted Naomi's heart. Does that to a lot of people. When my wife and I were young and stupid, we used to make one of our children do the happy dance before we gave them food. Do the happy dance. I see Naomi doing the happy dance. She's chowing down. She dumps the grain on the table and she's going at it. She's like Joey Chestnut at a hot dog eating contest. She's just shoveling it in. She looks like a chipmunk with her cheeks filled with grain. She's stuffing her mouth fuller than my mom stuffs those doggy bags. And she could use some table etiquette. She's chewing and asking questions at the same time. Which farmer gave you all this grain? Ruth answers Naomi, but not after stringing her along for a while. In the Hebrew, Ruth employs a string of alliteration, slowly emphasizing the last word of the sentence. Naomi's anticipation is building. It's dramatic. And with one long, pregnant pause, Ruth says, His name is Boaz. Naomi spits the food all over the table. Ruth is pulling grain out of her hair. Are you serious, Mom? This is embarrassing. What made Naomi react this way? What caused the shock and awe? Well, we will discover that when the action picks up in chapter 3 next week. Until then, I want to give you four applications. Do you think I was done? No. Four applications. <laughs> Application number one. The book of Ruth reveals that you haven't yet conquered a theology of work. This is what I love about books. They humble us. Show us areas we thought we had previously conquered. Just some questions here. Just some questions. Are you a boss? Would anyone working under your supervision ever hear you say, like Boaz, I hope you experience the presence of God as you work today? Are you empowering Ruth's 
Boaz understood that God's purpose in the gleaning laws was not just to get food to hungry people, but to empower people. Empowering others is much harder than doing the work yourself and giving away the excess production. Boaz could harvest the field much faster himself than investing in Ruth's farming capability. She's going to be slow at first. She's going to make mistakes. She's going to have friction with other workers. It could be a lot easier just to send Naomi and Ruth a loaf of bread every day. But Boaz doesn't do charity. He does empowerment. Boaz recognized the purpose behind God's laws, God's ethic, the agricultural procedures in the Bible. And when you do this, you are a farmer theologian, a teacher theologian, a manufacturer theologian, an administrative assistant theologian. Don't limit theologians to just the pastors. You be theologians. And, and, and by the way, make sure your employees do their jobs with integrity. Good business people like Boaz set up ethics at their job. This isn't going to happen in my fields. Boaz has a business that's influenced by Christians. You can just tell. You step on the field, onto the field, there's something different about this field. It's like the Old Testament Chick-fil-A. You step in, you're like, what is this? There's chickens over there in the corner singing four-part harmony. This is, this is God's place. God says, I want my character displayed in your field. Is his character being displayed in, in your field? And let me give a little, little caveat here. If you employ people, employers, this doesn't mean you don't fire someone who isn't working. It's not unchristian to fire someone. It's unchristian to continue to let them do a sorry job when Ruth is waiting at the edge of the field trying to get a job. And Paul says, I hope, I hope you make a lot of money with your field. I do. And I hope you tithe it to this church 10% every Sunday. But I just want to remind you that the God who gave you that field is more important than that field. I've seen it so many times. Someone starts a business. God blesses the business. And then I see his wife and kids come to church by themselves. And I see them go to small group by themselves. Then I ask them, what's, what's going on? I've seen your family. I haven't seen you. And then usually he tells me something like, well... When I get to this point in my business, I mean, it's exploding now. When I get to this point, I'm going to start doing this with my family, and I'm going to start doing this with my church. And my response is always just a loving, you're a liar. It's not going to happen. God has given you a more important field than your job, and that's your family. And you better be shepherding their hearts. God, God gave you two God-given responsibilities, the home and your job. And God-given responsibilities do not conflict. Application number two. The book of Ruth reveals you haven't yet conquered a theology of hospitality. Are you Boaz? Welcoming outsiders like Ruth, the non-kosher people? That's hospitality. Hospitality comes from two, two, two words, love and stranger. So do you love the stranger? Do you take satisfaction in making the stranger feel welcomed? Do you introduce them to others and bring them into the core of things? Or you just say, you know what, I'm just going to let them figure it out on their own. It's easy to forget how intimidating it is to be the newbie. Boaz kept welcoming Ruth, treating her with respect, letting her know you belong. So do this at church. Scan the rows in our congregation and, and see who's sitting by themselves. 
Do this in, in your subdivision. When you see a moving van pulling in, go meet them. Are you like Boaz inviting roosts to your table? When's the last time you had someone at your table that wasn't your skin color? When's the last time you've had someone at your table that wasn't the same political affiliation? Don't let the news keep you from having a Republican sit at your table or having a Democrat sit at your table. That's Satan's tactic to divide us. We, can, we cannot be divided because we have something stronger than political affiliation. We have the gospel. Jesus did evangelism around the table. So invite non-Christians over to your home for a meal. Christianity without hospitality is foreign to the Bible. It's not in there. We have eyes, but we don't easily see what Boaz saw. Find the overlooked, the outcast, the stranger. Find those people who were invisible to you before you came to Christ. But now, like Boaz, you can't help but to notice them everywhere. And don't make this field all about you. Stop thinking, are people making me feel comfortable? And get out of your shell and make other people feel comfortable. Our, our church does this so well already. Constantly having dinner parties, hosting foreign exchange students, reaching out one family to Mennonite communities, uh, going on play dates, adopting children, fostering children, allowing a refugee family to borrow your vehicle while you're deployed, going up to a broken-hearted set of parents in our church and saying, I bought this box of cereal bars in my groceries this week and I just want you to know that I love you and I love your, your children. Application number three. The book of Ruth reveals that you have not yet conquered a theology of chance. Faith doesn't simply sit around waiting for provision to drop down from heaven. Faith goes to the field. Ruth did not merely stand around with a bucket expecting the reapers to throw food into it. She didn't ask Boaz to beat out the grain or carry the heavy bag back to her house. Warren Rearsby commenting on this scene, he commented on this scene by consistently repeating a Latin proverb that says, Providence assist not the idle. One author wrote, even God won't steer a parked car. While she worked... God was working things out. Faith is active. Do you not have a job? But don't sit on the couch just thinking one's going to fall in your lap. Send out resumes and follow up with the resumes. Are you single and you want to be married? Don't think like, man, I hope my wife delivers my pizza tonight. This is the one. Ruth 2 is actually Proverbs 3, 5, and 6 in living color. Trust in the Lord with all of your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. And all of your ways acknowledge him, and he will make your paths straight. The last application is application number four. The book of Ruth reveals you haven't yet conquered a theology of the unseen hand. Are you living in Ruth chapter two? You're dirty and grimy with lots of questions. Like an electrical system in an old house, you can't make heads or tails of anything. The will of God doesn't come down like a package on a string. Rather, it's rolled out day by day like a scroll. Your life has not simply been planned by you. Sims wrote a hymn back in the day. I want to read the lyrics to you. The hymn goes like this. There's an unseen hand to me 
that leads the way I cannot see while going through this weary land guided by the unseen hand. And some sweet day I'll reach that land still guided by the unseen hand. I long to see my Savior's face and sing the story of his grace. And there upon that golden strand, I'll praise him for his guiding hand. Can't you hear Ruth singing that? Can't you hear Ruth saying, there's no happenstance or circumstance or any kind of chance. There's just providence. Let's zoom out from this story just for a moment and remember that Ruth is not the only dirty outcast that received a visit from God in the fields of Bethlehem. Years later, in the same fields, angels delivered an announcement of Jesus' birth to a group of dirty, smelly outcasts, shepherds, the ultimate unskilled laborers, the lowest rung on the social ladder. Their testimony was not even accepted in the law of court. The shepherds were the least likely people on earth to receive an angelic announcement about the birth of a king. They were dirty outcasts that received grace. And don't forget that you were, because of your sin, a dirty outcast. And if you've been redeemed, God has now moved you to fields of grace. See, here's the thing about grace. Grace takes people that wouldn't normally be there and puts them there. 3,000 years later, God visited these same fields again with bread, with the bread of life. And so as we try to control our futures by making plans and holding our cereal bars, let us pray for grace to see that our Father has provided bread that never spoils a redemption loaf to satisfy our broken Thank you for listening to this resource of Faith Family Church. We gather on Sundays at 495 Hugh Hunter Road in Oak Grove, Kentucky, and are a short drive from Fort Campbell and Hopkinsville, Kentucky, as well as Clarksville, Tennessee. For more information, visit our website, myfaithfamilychurch.com.